Black revolutionaries, distillery owners, Italian fashion retailers, and Motown Grammy winners all share their best stories never before told in any other media outlets on Detroit Is Different. Visit DetroitIsDifferent.com or download the Detroit Is Different app on Apple's App Store or Google's Play Store. All right, we are back in the Detroit Is Different podcast studios. It is finally feeling like it ain't gonna be winter and i'm gonna use ain't in the strong terms it's friday may 25th 80 something degrees outside memorial day weekend so people have already begun front porch barbecuing in my neighborhood that's the good <laughs> sign that tells you that it's warm and it's heating up and it's good i have somebody that is um a mutual homie of one of my closest 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 most beloved people on earth and when you come as a gateway of a friend and a person that worked with orthea barnes you are beyond golden in my book <laughs> satori shakur of twisted storytellers how are you today i'm fantastic like you say the vitamin d is out there shining yes it's <laughs> in full it's in full effect some people think that detroit is uh too cold for them but days like this, it's, it's them shaking the AC in here because we in the studio. Now nah, we'd have been sweating it out if it was just <laughs> chilling. So um, as we talk about Detroit, um, I'm speaking about the weather. But Detroit is so much more than weather. It's the culture. That's why I have Detroit is different. The culture, the story, the background. What's your story? What's your take on Detroit? What's, uh, what's been the leading point? So... Uh, you in Detroit. Are you a first-generation Detroiter, second, third, fourth? Who came to the city? I'm a first-generation um, Detroiter. My, okay. my mother came from Holly Bluff, Mississippi, okay, well, Yazoo County, the most racist county in the South. How big of a city is that? Um, it's not a, a very big city now, mm -hmm. and uh, it probably was just it was sharecropping then. Hmm. My mother was born in 1918. Hmm. My father is from Virginia, Fredericksburg, and he was born in 1900, hmm. and he migrated to Detroit uh, for a job. Okay. Car industry, automobile industry. He's part of the, the Great Migration, and my mother came uh, because she, uh, when she was 17, she and my my, cousin, my pregnant married cousin, and she were wanted had you know had attracted the unwanted attentions of a white farmer hmm. and in order and then back then if a white man whatever a white man wanted to do was permissible i mean we're seeing harvey weinstein yeah, come out of such an error but it, uh, uh, black women were nothing mm -hmm. you know so it didn't matter whether you're married or pregnant so they were they went to detroit where mm -hmm. my uncle had a big church and my, my mother came in 1935, 36, and my uncle was the junior pastor of a, of a big, big church. And he had a radical message. He was the youth pastor. And, and at, on any given Sunday, there were more people downstairs listening to his message than upstairs with the, the seniors. And um, so he had different ideas. He didn't think that there should be people above on the Diaz and people lower he didn't you know he didn't think that the the, the po politics of the church were you know he just had different ideas so he 
instead of, I guess, not, I don't think the word is compromising, but instead of being um, integrated into that culture of thinking and believing, he decided to move to a hall. And half the congregation went with him, so that was like a thousand people. Who, who, who is, uh, what's his name? His name was uh, Reverend Jesse Magruder. Okay, and yeah. where was the hall located? Um, it was called, I have it in, I did my genealogy, I should have brought it. <laughs> okay. But it was just a, it was a, just a hall, like any other hall that you've So been. like, almost like an open space, like a, mm-hmm. like a, I guess a, a Elks Lodge, or mm-hmm. like yeah. a Union Hall, or something yep. like that. Okay. Yeah, on Sundays. And, but he, he was married, mm-hmm. had some children, and then my aunt, I didn't, my aunt, he met my aunt. And they started dating, and he got divorced and married her, and the congregation didn't like that. So he lost a lot of members. I can imagine. <laughs> I, can, I can imagine. So when I came along, um, he had about 100 people. So I grew up around a lot of people. They had the red caps and the blue caps baseball team. They had horseshoes in the back, croquette, all of, you know. He made his own jigsaw puzzles. He made his own films. Hmm. He was a brilliant, oppressed black man that I did not like at the time because I didn't understand. Uh, I, did, I couldn't see the foot on his neck oppression as an invisible sort of terrorist. Mm-hmm. And so the oppression, the foot of oppression was on his neck and there was no place for the boy to go. Um, so his anger, his frustration was erupted. Was he also, when you say, um, when you say he was already here, He's from the Mississippi area. Yeah, he's area from yeah, too. yeah. My my um, grandfather had eight kids. He was um, the second oldest. And um, was he working in uh, one of the factories? He was as well? working as a handyman. Um, when he he was older than my mother, so around this time he was when I became conscious, mm-hmm. he was probably retired mm. and doing handyman jobs and different things like that. He was a minister, but he was very powerful. What uh, what neighborhood did he live in? He lived on um, Field Street hmm. in, near McClellan and Mack. In that okay. Area. Mm-hmm. Okay. And uh, what neighborhood were you living in? I up? lived on Fisher Street between Vernon and Kirchival. I, I, I lived, uh, it would bordered what they called Indian Village and Gross Point. Mm-hmm. So there's Burns mm-hmm. between Vernon and Fisher Street. So I shared an alley with uh, George Perot, who was a talk show host, a travel show host at the time. And he had a the, you saw, you know the big mansions they have yeah. over there in, in the village now. Uh, I used to walk up to Agnes where they have Detroit Vegan Soul and all. Used to, it used to be a library up there. Mm-hmm. It used to seem like a million miles away. But that was part of the ritual of reading. You would walk to the library. You could check out a maximum of five books. Me and my girlfriend, Vendella, and we'd come home and I'd read through the books and go to Greece and Egypt and mm-hmm. all these places I could go through the library. Um, so it was a great experience you know people don't kids don't walk to the library now my granddaughter just who's 16 um Mm -hmm. she's i said well why don't you just you know take the bus the bus and i thought oh she's got her nose in the air she goes human trafficking is they is is high in detroit they steal people here so we don't go to go to on the bus i said all right you know and so it's a whole different world it is definitely culturally a lot of things have shifted. Yeah. Some of them have remained the same. Yeah. Um, at at, uh, at that age, your mother, uh, what was the adjustment like from Mississippi? 
I to have no idea. Detroit. Did she speak about that? Uh, she yes, she did. She she picked cotton, so she went to the ninth grade because mm-hmm. when it was time to pick cotton, you got pulled out of school, hmm. and that's what you did. And you said this was a sharecropping town, so she yeah. was she so was part of it in sharecropping, and you can give more of a a breakdown of it. Uh, the uh, the the role of someone in sharecropping, first off, is it's indenture, it's still slave labor. So I mean the the it was idea Jim Crow. of of the whole concept of you work off um, you work as a servant for property and there was no accountability. There was little or if any some some states I had I know they they would say that there were some rights of the uh, sharecroppers, but the arbitration. I mean if most of the farmers that were at one point in time slave owners or overseers would turn and say nah you know you you deliver let's say um you know 25 pounds worth of tobacco and they tell you nah that's two pounds worth of tobacco so you still owe so it, the 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 balance of it was a continued state of chaos that still exists in our nation but especially in the south and during this whole time that has been labeled reconstruction well, it was, it was definitely Jim Crow South, mm-hmm. and uh, my mother talks about her stepmother because her mother died when she was five. Mm. So there was a s- stepmother who had land, and my father had eight, or my grandfather, her father, had eight kids. So the, her stepmother married my grandfather <laughs> for the kids cause, so they could work her land. Mm-hmm. And, um, Public Enemies Minister of Information, Professor Griff, celebrates the 30-year anniversary of the best hip-hop album ever. Thursday, June 28, 2018, at the Jam Handy. Witness a special behind-the-music unsung tribute to Public Enemies, It Takes a Nation of Millions to Hold Us Back album. Hip-hop performances from Mahogany Jones, Kari, Way, Frazier, and more will honor the landmark album. So she had to pick cotton. They got pulled out of school. So when she came to Detroit, obviously, they went to the Black Bottom. And she went to, um, I think it was Bar- Barber? Barber? Barbara Junior High. Mm-hmm. And she was 17 in the ninth grade. Mm-hmm. And she felt very uncomfortable being older than the, everybody else. Everybody else. So, she left and started doing, um, being, being a maid, housekeeper. So she was a maid and she worked in the affluent homes in, in Gross Point um, and over in the university area for a lot of Jewish families and in Plymouth and wherever she could find uh, work. Now, I have this question, and mm-hmm. just from my grandma from Mississippi, uh, preparing food because it's, it's different Mississippi ways and the last person I had on was a chef where I talked about this because his grandma's from Mississippi too, but your mom had it. A lot of stocks, like creating stocks when they create food and even creating vegetable stock to cook food and, and like just the flavor of a lot of the people from Mississippi can make amazing food. So what was it like just growing up as a kid in a house with a mom that learned to cook down in Mississippi? Well, first of all, I have to say my sister can cook better than my mother, as I in my memory. Really? Ain't that so? My mother wasn't. She, she cooked. Wasn't she made meals, mm-hmm. but she mm-hmm. wasn't. It was my aunt 
and you know it was my aunt Mayema who was a cook mm-hmm. and uh, my aunt Izetta who married my uncle the minister they were cooks they loved to cook you go over there it's a spread two three different kind of meat mm-hmm. vegetables pies cakes they were and they had award-winning cakes pound cakes to die for they were the cooks my mother she just made meals <laughs> For the kids, yeah, you know, so she, she fed everybody. She was like, yeah, so there was nothing, you know, that uh-huh. I could say was spectacular about my mother's food. But mm-hmm. my aunt, I remember that food was really good. Okay, and there were some things my mother could make, and I guess I inherited my mother's lack of interest <laughs> in cooking and preparing food. My sister can make a meal blindfolded with one hand behind her back. She just hand me that. Okay. It's just she just can produce that kind of. Uh, mm-hmm. Thing, but not me. So the other <laughs> culture in Mississippi that I also like is because it's as much as it's the food, the roots of the blues starts right there in Mississippi. So song, uh, dance. Um, what was that? Did, did you see that a lot coming up? I know that a lot would have been gospel influence in the church household, but. What, was there any blues influence? Was there any folk influence? Well, um, like my mother was 20 years younger than all of the people. Mm-hmm. My uncle was in my uncle's congregation. So they were all from the South, Arkansas, mm-hmm. Little Rock, Arkansas, Georgia, Alabama, mm-hmm. um, different places in the South. So the food, the, the, the languages or the accents, the way of speaking, they were all very different but homogenized on some level. Um, I, my, my stepmother, Sadie, she would put, um, you know, there, was, there were different ways she would make peach cobbler, different mm-hmm. seasonings that they, that they would use. And so you could taste the, the difference between the sweet potato pie Sadie made and, cool. and one like that. But they loved to make what they call pot liquor. Which was okay. the juice from the from the greens. So there were a lot of, tri- and they were healers. They used herbs. They used stuff from the earth to heal you, because there wasn't a lot of um, medicine at that time um, that I remember using. This not, nothing like the, this culture of hospitals mm-hmm. and medicine. People didn't. You go in the hospital today. Oh, I broke my nail, and they they'll shove you some morphine. You know, here you go for that little hangnail or whatever, and. Um, Hmm. I, you know, so, so even coming up, a lot of times, uh, and my grandma in this house here, we keep all types of different plants for different things. So like aloes and mm-hmm. plants I didn't even remember. Like um, it would be even, even things like uh, to detox with onions and just just a lot of different ways she came up because my grandma here was from Florida. But different, uh, like some of the vegetables and the fruits are regionalized to like different uh, places to go. So as you came up, if you had sinuses or different things like that, it was a lot of remedies just connected to the herbs and the spices that your family had. Well, everybody had a garden at the time. You know, Hmm. I mean, food was not an industry at the time. There Hmm. were no McDonald's or Whoppers. I remember the first McDonald's in Big Boy. I'm not big boy, Whopper. Mm. What do you call them? Burger, burger King. King. Yeah, mm. we had to walk a long way to go to get Burger King with that big burger. Um, but people made things from their garden. They, we had flower gardens and vegetable gardens. People, my family was a fish 
fishermen they, and hunters. My father had dogs and guns and he, we went on long two-week vacations to Mackinac Island to Canada and they fished. They even fished in the winter, ice fishing. Hmm. We had a worm pit. We would pick worms um, at night. Wow. Um, night crawlers. We'd pick flatworms at Belle Isle and we would go and they would go fishing. Okay. And so every and they would hunt. So everything was organic, so to speak. Yeah, <laughs> you without, pulled it right without out of the your intentionality yard. of it being organic. It had to be organic yeah. because it was it was grown you from did. your backyard. Yeah. Wow. Everybody had it. And then there and then that fast food took over. Mm. I mean we would my father once a month would put us in the car, we'd drive to Inkster to this restaurant where they had these big butterfly shrimp. Mm-hmm. And that would be our that would be our outing. We're, once a month, we go out to dinner. You know, it's nothing hmm. like you know. <laughs> nothing like today, where people no. go out every day. Right, because then, because there were you know it was um, you just couldn't go to any restaurant you wanted to. You, there was mm-hmm. no mingling with white people like that. You know, mm-hmm. so you went to Inkster to a restaurant that some black person owned, and you know, mm-hmm. you, again the money was circulating in the black community because it didn't yes there was no place to spend it in and other then, communities and then even for the person listening ink stir the ink is black ink <laughs> i mean like these are like stories that like some of these you know brownstown mm-hmm. for black people like some of these stories and some of these names of like the community set up for black people to work in factories that were explicitly segregated so when people talk about insurance redlining it was like inkster was set up for black people because that's why it's called inkster because it's like black people stay over there brownstown brownstown black people stay over there um as this is all happening and you your your family stay rooted in this east side neighborhood that uh, yeah my father owned a two-family flat on fisher street Hmm. I lived up, we lived upstairs with my mother and he lived downstairs with his wife, mm-hmm. Sadie, who was my stepmother. But, you know, they never unmarried. You know, they never got divorced. My uncle was, like I said, he was the one very powerful. He put couples together. <laughs> mm-hmm. My father wanted children. His, his wife didn't want children. And she was past childbearing age. And my mother was 35 and popping. And so she bore him five children, hmm. of one of which I am. And, uh, and so it was kind of like a communal kind of thing. It was like that. And, um, and so I went to school. I love school. You know. what, uh, what schools? I went to Scripps. Then I went to Monteith Elementary. I went to Butzel Junior High in Cass Tech in Michigan State, Wayne State, and University of Hawaii at Manoa. So I love learning. I always love school. I remember having... I was sick, and my mother and I loved after school. <laughs> mm-hmm. And my mother said, "Well, you ought to stay home from school because you have a fever." And she had the thermometer, and I would take my temperature every like seemed like every ten minutes to see could I boost my temperature down so I could go to the after school thing, mm-hmm. you know. But I love and still do love learning because it's so interesting. You know, okay, so with that being said. What was the first book independently that you remember, like that you really got into? Because if you're learning, and I'm I'm a book, as they say, like you know they put head on the end of everything. I'm a book head. I have a lot of books. Sometimes I'll thumb through a lot of chapters, 
I'm going cover to cover. It's, it's rare I'll go cover to cover. I just got that Zora Neale Hurston book about the um, about the last uh, gentleman that was documented as going through the Middle Passage after it was quote unquote made illegal. So I'll, I'm going to try my darndest to get through the whole cover to cover of that because I've heard so much about it. But what was the first book you remember going cover to cover and like, this is amazing? This is amazing. Um, well, I love Stephen King. Okay. Because <laughs> I, I love storytelling. Uh-huh. And Stephen King is one of the master storytellers. Sure. And uh, I remember reading The Stand. Hmm. And I was on the road with Parliament Funkadelic. <laughs> and I was backstage reading The Stand. Oh, and, and, and the music was pumping. I yeah. know people were walking by you like, what you read? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I just, I was on the bus. I just, you know, mm -hmm. reading was part of who I, mm -hmm. it was, just, so I'd be backstage reading the stand like, <laughs> it's like, you got to go on stage and sing now. Okay. Uh -huh. You know, and it's like, okay, how can Stephen King take you, you know, but that was, um, so I read the stand and it was prophetic to me, you know, because mm -hmm. it, it talked about, it, it talked about a virus that wiped out the world was like AIDS. It talked about, um, it just was prophetic to me. Um, I liked learning about religion. Mm -hmm. um, I liked learning about everything I was oppressed by. Hmm. Interesting. <laughs> and um, I was oppressed by damn near everything as a teenager, because teenagers, hmm. are, to me, are the most oppressed children and are yeah. the most oppressed class. And then being a woman, that puts you in another subset yes. of oppression, yes. even as being a yes. teenager. But see, you don't know you're oppressed. You just know. It doesn't feel correct. It, it's you not. Don't even it's have a label boxed for in. It. I'm yeah. dreaming beyond mm -hmm. the box other people mm -hmm. are expecting of me. You know, it was like I felt like I had to fight my mm -hmm. mother to do the things I wanted to do. She wanted me to take business at class, and I wanted to play in the orchestra. So in the, in the 10th grade, I said, I'm sorry, I'm not doing business. I'm going to play in the orchestra. So I felt like I had to fight for my self-expression for a long time. And I didn't really know I was fighting racism or sexism or any, any of that. You know, I just had a desire to actually, whatever I was thinking in my head, have it be 3D in the world or to yeah. have that experience. I was a dreamer. Mm -hmm. So I would dream about a future and then I would have the future. It was like, I, you know, I'm not a religious person. I don't belong to any, you know, organized mm -hmm. religion. Uh, my husband is Lutheran. I asked him before we even, when we started dating, what is your expectation of your wife? And, you know, we got that straight because I've explored a lot of religions, including no, including atheism. You know, when I was going to Wayne State, I have a great professor, Dr. Ron, er um, Aronson, who's fourth generation atheist and uh, third generation atheist, and then he has mm -hmm. grandchildren. Jewish man, powerful. Mm -hmm. I just loved learning from him. <clears throat> but he was the first atheist that I actually met that I could sit down and talk to because, other than that, they had horns. You know, they were just, how could you not, you know, they were devils. Or, but when I sat down and actually engaged with Dr. Aronson, and he was, a, he was an activist. I mean, he was Chavez. He was more global. He went to South Africa to teach mm -hmm. South Africans how to be, have activism. It was mm -hmm. very 
um, on the down low because of his spies all over. But he, he you know, his position about anyway. He, uh, I said, well, how can you not believe? And don't you need hope? And he says, well, there is no hope without activism. Mm. And so I never forgot that, and I started, you know, I took his religion class, and in, in, in his religion class, my mother had died and my son had died. Mm. So I was in a very, very, gr I was grieving. I was, I was in hell, the, uh, the numbness of hell. And I was, there was no God there that I had invented. There was no God that, I had come in contact with before that they could reach me there. And so it was a perfect space. I'm an artist, so I use the materials, I use the circumstances, the situations of my life to create out of and from. So if I'm in hell, what am I gonna create now? You know, mm -hmm. um, let me, what am I, you know, what am I gonna, you know, it's not so much escaping as mm -hmm. it is about understanding who I am in hell. Mm -hmm. So in, I was taking his religion class, or the transformation of religion is what it was called. And we were looking at how religion has changed over time, how people used to go to their church, mm -hmm. and now people go to a church, mm -hmm. or they stay home and watch church yeah. on TV. And mm -hmm. churches are now, you know, there's 15 minutes of marketing and sales of the book, and maybe 10 minutes of your message and you know it's very I, I, let me let me say this because um, uh, my grandma is uh, I've definitely I'm Christian but I don't Bible thump and I'm not asking for other parishioners to follow the the teachings of Jesus Christ or follow and accept Christ as Lord I believe that uh, if if someone if if the way I move and my impacts impact others, then it'll be different. But I grew up as my my grandma grew up in a Presbyterian church, so so my interpretation of church was Presbyterian most of my life. I finally went to Baptist churches as I grew older, and then like women I date say, "Come to church with me, come to church with me," and it'd be so I find it so interesting that when I went through Presbyterian church in the same topic. I would have to bring a Bible. I would go from verse to verse to verse to verse to verse to verse to verse. Like almost everything being said by the pastors and the preachers was something in the Bible being said. And I went to a Baptist church and then like, you know, so the third day Jesus rose and then somebody talked for like two hours. And like I found it so, so I found it so different, like like the, the orientation. And also over time with, with the black community, the role that the churches has played as one of the few places that where people could come together as you were speaking about like you know you'd have to drive to all the way to inkster to get to a restaurant as the idea of black people being accepted into different places and spaces uh that are physical has changed the functionality and the role that the physical location of a church provides for the black community as the church was a, a social gathering a, a meeting place a uh, a networking uh capacity a place of activism a place that provided a lot more roles than I, I would say where it stands today as being a black man like most black men and we're not in the pews it, the arguments always made by most pastors um is unique you know unless 
you know, oftentimes I've seen like black men are really old, and I say that that's they're trying to buy their way back into heaven or whatever, so they'll get like <laughs> their last. They'll they'll know it's like ah, let me start going to church again, you know. Whereas, but like younger younger black men, unless they have like some role in leadership in church, it's a little bit different. But even the distorted distorted nature of how people see what happens in church leadership what uh what church provides you know role of a deacon role of a pastor and i would go as far as to say most people are following a pastor and they're not following a church it's like passive passive this passive that it's not an entity that exists beyond the role of whoever this generally a man like most things <laughs> whoever whatever this man like the church is existent because of this man not because yeah, doctrine oh, is kind of like not part of it anymore. It's sort of taking yeah. a back seat to, you know, because if you want, if you actually participate in a Catholic mass and the doctrine, it's not built for this, you know, time, you mm -hmm. know, social media time. Right now, you can, if you if you're not in L.A. and you want to listen to um, um, Michael. Beckwith or yeah. Joyce Myers or whomever mm -hmm. it is, you can you can have them. You can see them right in your living room. Mm -hmm. You know you don't have to be go to a physical church. And I was in his course, looking at all the different religions. And I was, and and then to see that that every that God, the idea of God, um, is your idea of God, my idea of God. Mm -hmm. We say we believe in God, but it's not the same God yeah. that we believe in. It's very much specific and customized to who we are. That God is, mm -hmm. and that um, that they that they broke down four kinds of gods that people tend four categories of God in belief that people are in, and there's the Daddy God, the or the Bremen bright. Uh, you know Bremen's fire god and there's the god that sits up there and doesn't do anything you know just watches over it's different kinds of gods but at that time I was at a place where I could explore atheism and there was this little book called uh, A Short Introduction to Atheism by Julian Baggini I read it it was basically an argument and it was an airtight argument after that I could not there was mm -hmm. Uh, there was I couldn't say you know it, it was valid it was mm -hmm. valid as and so because there was no proof of God that the God exists you can't prove that God exists you can't prove the existence of God or the non-existence of God I came to choice mm -hmm. and um, and that for me as I was taking the journey I was like looking at living without God because that was the challenge how living without God and I rationalize well I live without God most of the time you know I live with God God comes into play when I'm like thank you God or please God please don't let you know other than that I'm sort of like mm. God is in the background someplace and I wondered was that true for most people that you call on God in crises and and you call on God when it was the last you know your mm -hmm. last hope so I really got to see what God, who, what God is for me, you know, how, mm -hmm. I, what my God was, and that I invented that God out of the materials out there, and then what I needed. That's that's applicable 
for you yes, to reach that, your yes, spiritual yes, journey and yes, quality of life. Yes, because mm-hmm. I knew at 12, I, I was just honest. I knew that at 12, I had no access to accepting Jesus Christ as my personal Savior. Mm-hmm. Somebody that walked the earth 2,000 years ago. In my family, my uncle, we didn't celebrate Christmas or Easter. Mm-hmm. There was no Santa Claus. There were no Easter bunnies. And so... Mm-hmm. Jesus was like on that level, you know, I'm supposed to believe in something, you know, that I, and I was just honest about it. So when my, so when my uncle said, I'm not doing right, you know, I'm not really being a a correct minister, send them to the closest church in the neighborhood. The closest Hmm. church was St. Luke's Lutheran Church. So I went there, I did three years of catechism. And at the end there was a, a ceremony and you're supposed to drink the blood Mm-hmm. and drink the blood and eat the body of Christ. Mm-hmm. And it said in the Bible over that if you eat the blood and if you don't believe in Christ, you'll burn in hell for eternity. Mm-hmm. So I brought the concern to Pastor Luke. And he says, oh, no, just do it. You know, it'll be fine. And then that's when I realized, okay, as soon as I do this ritual, I am never coming to church again because he didn't care about my soul. <laughs> and I was like a kid, like, well, I'm going to die in hell if I do this. And I, oh, no, just so... I didn't go back to church again until I went moved to Hawaii and I went to Science of Mind and then I got to see churches were different personalities. You know, mm-hmm. the Science of Mind in LA was not the same one. It was personality driven. So I was there I was exploring atheism and deconstructing, you know, what God was for me because it was I never, you know, I never explored God. It was just something there that's there and you're supposed to do it. And if you don't, you're some kind of pariah or something. So I had the, I had the maturity. I had the chutzpah. I had the grief. I had enough to go. And so out of that journey, I realized that, you know, God is a choice and that God is something that I invent. Mm-hmm. That it, God doesn't, that, that God you know, people say, oh, and then when I go to Jamaica, that's my church. That's God. Mm-hmm. You know, because it's something all of us can look at and go, I fall on my knees looking at the sky, the ocean in Jamaica, the breathing, the air, the, mm-hmm. the just getting in the Pacific Ocean and feel, crying on contact. Like, the, n- nobody made me fall on my knees. It was yeah. just a natural, organic response to this thing that was bigger than myself mm-hmm. and it was it's not so much how can there not be a god it's just how can you not be grateful so if god mm-hmm. is anything it's it's this feeling this thing that makes the chill bumps come on my arms of gratitude of being so grateful for to be part of all of this energy and to know that i am one with all of this and there's no separation between what we call God and myself, and that I am simply an instrument through which something higher is using me if I, if I surrender to it. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm at that place where I'm, I'm, in, I'm in a surrendering place, and I feel the power of thinking or creating like... I, th- I just think that, that for the first Genesis, I'm not a Bible reader or a thumper, mm-hmm. but it says it all there. You know, to yeah, me, I, there was, I, there was you know, in the beginning was the Word. Yeah. And the Word was with God, and God said, let there be, mm-hmm. and there was, and God looked upon the creation and said, it is good. So it is an, as an artist, 
it begins with the word. As a human beings, it begins with our word and the integrity of that word. But people think integrity lives in morality and eth and and being and ethics, which it can be. But the integrity I'm speaking about is the workability or functionality or the success of something working. So everything, you know, the design of something has integrity. The integrity of design, the integrity mm -hmm. of organization, the integrity of your word. And if you don't honor that word all the way through, um, you let that word slip, you will not get to, to, to the success. A chair is designed with four legs. If one of the legs is missing, then you've compromise the integrity of the design of what that chair was meant for you yeah. to do. Unless you fall down. You don't fall down. <laughs> you know. So, and if you yeah, cut yeah. out another leg, it's less functional. So, yes. uh, the, the people don't get the connection between honoring their word, mm -hmm. not keeping the word, honoring the word. So, if I say, I'm going to be here, I'm going to be here, or else I let you know when I know that I can't, mm -hmm. like my car. <laughs> yeah. And it's, uh, you know. And she, and, and you're speaking to something from yesterday and, and I would and so much it, it's so many different things to unpack as I love philosophy and in the ethic uh, the integrity uh, there's a direct relationship mm -hmm. between get being you know having success in something and not there's a direct link to honoring your word if you say you're gonna do a do a or communicate and get it done another time because even if you can't get it done and you can communicate you are you're building trust you don't mm -hmm. let that happen to people do a cost-benefit analysis on their word you know after the fact do the cost-benefit analysis before don't give you don't give your word lightly people often say oh yeah you know um, so it's 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 real it's a very disciplined and rigorous thing to go but mm -hmm. at, in, at the end of the day you're gonna get there and you, I, you will and get I'm, there I'm definitely on that journey and along with being on that journey comes the you know I, where I'm at now standing in good intention and, mm -hmm. and sometimes making the decision at the margin as business is one of my things so like a lot of business classes you take will talk about making decisions at the margin meaning when when that when the decision presents itself to you and you have the the those options of to move in a way that is I mean we we can you know we we can we can live in many different you know the semantics of of ethics of like what's the best thing to do here what's the worst thing to do here but to just move in the way of like I believe this is going to be the best case scenario for who I'm engaging with and that could be as as small as offering the person that you know it, it could be as small as saying like man i know that i'm gonna probably want to get dinner and this is a seven o'clock appointment coming up so let me kick that seven o'clock appointment back to eight o'clock or do i tell my seven o'clock appointment hey do you want to uh i'll pay for your dinner if you want dinner you know what i mean like to me that's moving at the margin of making a decision where they can turn the dinner down they could choose to have it but sometimes it's funny when i offer to do the do you want the dinner? The person's like, you know what? I do want the dinner and I really want to go to this place. I just haven't been able to go there yet because of blah, blah, blah. It could be money. It could be nobody wanted to go with me. It could be, I don't know. I just didn't get there yet. Like sometimes when I've made the decision to do what 
may not necessarily be what I feel is the most convenient thing, but the most righteous thing, it's opened up more doors to more convenience along the way, as opposed to like withholding certain things, which I believe a lot of um, capitalism, American society, white men have been pre have the predisposition uh, or systems and systems. Let me be more clear about that. Systems designed to inherently reward white men, middle-aged white men most, are built on the idea of scarcity because this is the driving engine of capitalism. It's like scarcity, meaning there aren't enough. It's not abundant for everyone. But if I let my, my cup runneth over, so I'm like the Bible right here, <laughs> and live in abundance blindly, especially for those I engage with, the abundance comes back to me overwhelmingly sometimes. Like I'm surprised the more that I engage in that in that belief, the way that it comes back. Because I've been conditioned and socialized to feel like, eh, let me let me wait to get another hundred dollars before I pay this other person a hundred dollars, even though I got the hundred dollars to pay this person today. Let me let me give myself this buffer zone. And this is on all, all levels of walks of life, you know, and I'm still learning and growing in my journey of this selflessness, as you say, like uh, really the 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 principle I, I I recognize most in Christianity is kind of like what you said, because it's more so like if you see everyone you interact with as God, then I wouldn't. You know what I'm saying? Like, I wouldn't be like, I'm not about to give Jesus. A I'm not going to not give God a sandwich. I'm going to respond to everyone. If I'm driving down the road and it's freezing outside and I see somebody stranded with their hood up, I'm not going to say, man, it's too cold to turn around. I want to get home and go to sleep. I'm going to figure out how to hook around. I'm not going to mentally think, man, this could be a setup. This could be the old on the side of the road on a cold day. I'm going to rob this guy trick. Like I would, I would move in a way where through faith I'm driven to be present to see the godliness of who whomever I'm interacting with. Now it's still a journey that I'm growing through because it's still certain people I see where it's like, ah, that guy tried to get at me, you know, or whatever. I feel like she tried to take advantage of me. But to find the godliness of people, especially when I feel as though they don't see me in the best light that I, I'm trying to be. It's it's a very difficult um journey but a lot of this discussion feels like it's right in that zone which is unique that you even said that you experienced a place that was hell like or hell from this journey of the grieving process of losing mother and son grieving is very po powerful Gr grieving is the path to healing you know, it's not, it's not to be avoided. You know, it's, 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 it's grace. You know, it's, 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 you are being redesigned, recalibrated to be in a different consciousness because you have lost something of yourself. And in the missing of that, something has to, rush into that space and what rushes into that space is experience and 
tr you know, you begin to trust life. You know, you begin to trust the process of life and therefore risks become the path, you know, living on the edge of life, living in that is where life is. People want to get to a place of comfort. Comfort for me is um, you've, you've achieved and it's time for the next challenge. You know, you, you catch your breath, you enjoy, you know, the view and then you, you experience that moment of, I, I, I'm here to grow. Mm -hmm. What's next? What's next? What's next? You know, and so life becomes this very intriguing invitation to become, to, 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 be, to continually become more and more of who you really are. Mm -hmm. and, and, when, and, then you, and then who are you really? Which, which I have a question about that, just being black in this zone as the trauma we've experienced here in America. And one question, you have a beautiful smile. And people always look at me and say, Car, you're always smiling. Most times I'm laughing because I find the human experience, like some of the things that, some of, even through the tragedy, it's like, man, how did you make that decision? I, I just find it very, like, the, the comedy of it. Sometimes the tragic thing of it. But people always come to me like, you always smiling. You always smiling. You always smiling. Have you been told that most of your life? Yeah, you look, you look so happy. I love your smile. Um, but I have always been somebody that likes a lot of laughter around me. Uh -huh. I, you know, um, I just like, and I didn't even, I didn't realize that I could cause laughter. I became uh -huh. a stand-up, not because I thought I was funny, but to solve a problem. Uh -huh. And then I realized, oh, you, you're funny. I had to discover I was funny and what mm -hmm. made me funny. Because I would, on my journey, you know, you, you had to tape your stand-up to see what worked. And there would be times I'd listen to the tape and I didn't hear no talking that I was doing, but I would hear laughter and like, what am I? So you have to learn, you, you become aware. Mm -hmm. And so awareness, consciousness is, you know. Why do you think in our community is that sometimes, it, it almost sometimes seems threatening as much as I've been told, like you always smiling. Like, why do you think sometimes it can be interpreted like a smile can be interpreted like it's out of place? I've never encountered that it was a smile was out of place. There was thing. There was places that I was in that I would laugh that it, that it didn't seem laughter was appropriate. But nobody can see from your point of view. Mm -hmm. I was I was in at the University of Hawaii. And my dance teacher had a concert, and she, and her whole dance was just serious, stone serious. Uh huh. That was it. Just hitting the fist in the palm. Yeah. And it was so, you know, the, my expectation that she would do something different now. Uh-huh. Every time I expected, now this has gone on way too long. Her just, it's time for her to spin or jump or do something predictable that mm -hmm. I can recognize as dance. And the idea of what I, I, what I yeah, have and, is dance. Yeah, yes. what I have is dance. And she is not doing that. And it became absurd mm -hmm. that she was not meeting mm -hmm. my expectations and and. And so I started to laugh. And I have the kind of laughter that is pretty loud and raucous and it causes other people to laugh. laugh. Uh -huh. And so it's so like the whole audience was laughing and she was still. And then afterwards I went back to the dressing room to apologize. She says, no, no, I loved it because I didn't know what the dance was about. And so it's like this, 
Chinese water torture, you know, it was like the dance was about tension and no release. Wow. And then, and then expecting, you know, to it was so you take you. T- so the you, release kind of became the laughter that, that ended right, up right, happening anyway. Right, because you have to release, mm-hmm. and it was she was just build, building mm-hmm. up the expectation that something's going to happen. So it's like life, you know. You think life is going to go this way, and life doesn't go that way, and. So laughter, as, as I began to study comedy mm-hmm. and discover what makes people laugh, mm-hmm. uh, what makes people laugh is the um, d- breaking of their assumptions. You Actually, know, so, so you can cry yeah. or laugh. It's like I was assuming this was going to go this way, and it went this way, so I'm either going to cry or I'm going to laugh, yeah. and that's what comedians are, you know, I if they're it. really good, are magicians. You know, they'll take you down here and twist off here or someplace you didn't think you were going to go. And it's like, oh yeah, I didn't think of that, you know. Or oh, I didn't know, yeah. you know. It's 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 very. So it's uh, it's it's to, to so like you can create a context. You can create a kind like if you take nuns, mm-hmm. we expect nuns to behave a certain way. So if you yeah. for you, so if you like create sister, a, like sister act the movie. The, the preposterousness of the joke. Yes. Was that the, the Whoopi setup, Goldberg is a showgirl. Yes. But to save her life, she has to. Right. Right. Know. The setup is yeah. nuns are holy and they do yes. things. And the the the, the um, punch mm-hmm. is that Whoopi is a showgirl. Yeah. So everything she does in the habit and in the nunnery yeah. is funny. And you don't have to keep telling, setting joke. it up, yeah. setting it up. It's already the setup yeah. is here. And now I'm just being this thing inside yeah. of a context that's. Yeah. supposed to do this but i'm doing this and so uh, you know comedy is a, is, is a interesting Art i learned how to act mm-hmm. through second city i was i took so many acting classes from some of the very you know big people in la and i could not understand acting the way they were teaching it you know meisner the this the that until i got to second city and improv mm. and then i understood mm. you know what it is to act acting is not acting it's being which which <laughs> it, we can go in so many different yeah, layers but I mean, my my yeah my sense of humor is definitely you just put into context what it's like one of the funniest things to this day and me and one of my friends talk about it like every time we meet but uh northwestern high school shout out miss lafleur miss lafleur was one of the best hard-nosed computer and typing teachers ever but one day we walking in there because I go back and like I mentor kids or whatever, and it was a kid that had. She was like, "We was doing resumes today." She had that raspy voice, Louisiana. And can you believe he got pop? He got clip art on his resume, <laughs> but the clip art was of a guy shaking hands like he's having a resume, and it just was so funny to me because it was like I was like, "Hey, he's so factualizing that he's getting a job." And then, and then Miss Lafleur's face—the way she looked at me—was like, "Now nah, you know you can't have art on a resume." <laughs> but I mean, why not? I know. And I was like, "What's so funny is like I would definitely hire this guy because <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm like mm-hmm. he stood out to me." <laughs> mm-hmm. But just the joke of like her assumption mm-hmm. that this is the only way resume should be exactly. Done. And I gotta teach these kids how to do a resume the right way. We in the ghetto at Northwestern. You know you need to really get a job. And his assumption of like, I really want to do something different. And I want to speak to it, be, you know, being different. 
and then knowing that like the balance between both yeah he was expressing himself through his resume yeah Yep. So that brings me to the artistry itself. You've you've done a lot of different things as an artist. Singer and storytelling is what I know. Mm -hmm. But those are the boxes that have been checked in my mind Mm -hmm. of your journey. Mm -hmm. So let's get into music itself Mm -hmm. and George Clinton. And Mm -hmm. I've met George a couple of times. And depending upon what's happening in the time of day, boy, oh boy, it's always experiential interacting with Mr. Clinton. Mm -hmm. So music journey parliament funkadelic how did that happen um well i started music in second third grade with violin okay became professional by 15 playing in jazz groups with earl clue had electric Mm -hmm. red bark red barkus berry violin i was in the orchestra at Cass tech playing on motown records coming out of united sound one of my classmates, Harold Jones, would do the arrangements and we would play the string parts. And, we, mm. and, and so I was in like four orchestras, all city orchestra, where all the kids from mm-hmm. all over the schools in the city, I was in Dr. Um, Andy White's orchestra, community orchestra, bunch of black kids, Ralph Armstrong was in there, Cephas Van Cephas, Ray Parker, Sylvester Rivers, you know, just mm. a lot of people in that orchestra. Um, and I and it was a sweet spot in history where education had a very high value. Mm-hmm. We had field trips to the Detroit Symphony Orchestra, to the museums, to to um, um, I, I can't even think of this place out here. What Grainfield Village? Mm, yeah, Grainfield Village, but um, they have Cobby County. Mm, it's a, it's a it's a school, Cranbrook, Cranbrook Institute, mm-hmm. uh, all these places, you know. Um, I didn't, you know, so we, I was exposed to a lot of stuff, mm-hmm. which that's what's great about education for kids, you know, expose you to a lot of stuff. And then you, you're not in a small mm-hmm. world of few choices. You, you can dream now, you know. That, mm-hmm. And um, so music was very part, much part of Detroit's life. Motown, I was growing up in Motown, street corner, singing groups, most of the folks, young men were in the factories and Barry Gordy was like mm-hmm. this big influence and and I was playing in the orchestras I was classically tr- being trained classically yeah, so violin. music was just everywhere mm-hmm. I was singing you know I was singing with Martha Reeves baby sister Pinky we had a little three girl group mm-hmm. so music was everywhere like it is when you go to London go to London music it's everywhere you go to ladies room you in a stall you hear baby baby where did my love go and this is this is like Today, so mm. in in Europe, music is it's like I'm on a continuum. Number two, right here. Yeah, it's not just the <laughs> latest song, you know, or the programmable music. Uh, it's every so wide and vast, yeah, and yeah. and that's the way you know we had you know. So I was very attracted uh, to music, and when I felt like I had a you know could do it, so I moved to New York. Um, after grad, getting out of college, I moved Where, to New York. What part of New York? Manhattan, 90th, East 90th and 2nd Street. Okay. Third so floor like, walk up. And my friend Overton Lloyd. So that's and like artist, blocks away from good old Harlem as well. Yeah, we, we, we were like a, like 105, you know, we were mm-hmm. about 30 blocks from Harlem. Yeah. I have a story about that. We met some homicide detectives coming from Spanish Harlem. But anyway, my friend mm-hmm. Overton did the album covers for George. He lived in New York, too. 
-hmm. He had come by. I worked at Dunkin' Donuts six to midnight shift. So he came by in a limo, he said, to pick okay, me up. Okay, one second. Go. You got a lot of stories to tell about that. Yeah, six yeah. Six to midnight shift, Dunkin' Donuts, New York. Six, 6 p.m. to midnight, yeah. Oh, right man. right on Lexington and uh, 59th. Oh, right down Bobby, the street man. from Alvin Haley. My roommate, she was a Gina Ellis. She took classes at Alvin Haley. Yeah, you probably and got she all was, types of stories. Oh, I got, I mean, please. <laughs> uh, at any rate, Overton come by my house. Mm -hmm. I wasn't there. I was working at Dunkin' Donuts. He left Funk and Teleki versus the Placebo Syndrome album at, the, at our door. Mm. I didn't even take the cellophane off because I'm like, I'm jazz and I'm going on yeah. Broadway but then when he told me there was audition for the brides in Detroit I ripped the cellophane off and put it record on and I was blown away mm. almost like listening to one instrument at a time down the track and I and I was yet to meet these people Bernie Warwell who's Juilliard trained I was I mean I was you know Ohio, Junie Ohio players I mean these were mm. like geniuses yeah, yeah. So I went back, I came back to Detroit and to audition. Let me, let me say this, my, another one of my big homies in that mix, Butch Small. Yeah, Butch. Love Butch. Yep, one David the, Spradley, wrote Tommy Dog. ever. <laughs> yeah, he was playing with Parlette Bootsy and Godmama. Yeah, he was on a lot of stuff. Mm -hmm. I, in fact, I saw Butch Small and Dwayne Parham performed at the Secret Society, Twisted Storytellers, together. A few years ago. So that was a ball. That was a blast. Um, yeah, so music was in me, and I was in it, and I was pursuing it. I majored mm -hmm. in music at Voice and at University of uh, at Michigan State. So I got the job, mm -hmm. and there I am. My first week worth of rehearsal, I'm on stage in uh, Pittsburgh, 10,000 mm -hmm. people. What? And then the journey began. So, and, okay, it's... It's a couple people in music that I know because people that have worked with them. It's my dad's from Cincinnati and knew a lot of the people uh, in Bootsy's original band mm -hmm. that went right on the road with them when, mm -hmm. when they went out with James. So mm -hmm. I know a little bit about the James process. I know a lot of hip hoppers because I know hip hoppers mm -hmm. and a lot of the George process too. Mm -hmm. George's process of making music is a very, uh, it definitely is interesting. So what was it like being in the studio, staying up and really seeing that, like, one second, these people really don't leave the studio? Well, the studio is um, like Vegas. It's 24-7. You know? It's a creative space. Mm -hmm. So you don't leave creativity. You know, it's an energy. It's a spirit. So if you're, you don't even have a sense of time, you know, you're just... Atomic Dog, I knew it was a hit because George ordered pizza. What's that? So we, that's that man, we, that man, we were gonna be there, you know. Uh, I knew <laughs> knee deep again pizza, yeah. But George was a space for creativity. He encouraged, uh -huh. quote unquote, mistakes. So people would, you know, he'd sing something, mm -hmm. you know, and he had an ear. He his ear was, whew. you know, he was saying, "Dang, what?" Uh -huh. And so somebody would take that and riff it, and he'd go, I like that. Or a lot of the things that you hear, you know, baba booba, you know, mm -hmm. a lot of stuff was just mis quote unquote mistakes. Or mm -hmm. somebody just had an inspirational moment, and George just like had enough genius to say, keep that. Mm -hmm. And then everybody was trying to get on the records, you know, there was a competition of creativity. Yeah. 
So it was friendly. It was built on, you know, so I would, you know, I'm a lyricist. I'm a writer, so I would think of stuff, you know, and I they were doing electro cuties and it was like and I just came up with this so man he played one he played knickknack all night long with a knickknack pillowette can he find a fuse and I went over to George and I sung it to him he says go out there and put it on track so yeah, there it I'm, is that sounds like there it is I like George um and like even as you said knee deep it's like one of one of the best vocalists ever so I love the spinners and Felipe it's like it's like Felipe's amazing, but in that mix of the funk, as great as his voice even is, it has to still find the 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 place as if every instrument is in the mix with percussion or like it it it's weird it's it's unique because it's like man you get a voc a vocalist as great as that to just be like all right no 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 you you're not just about to you know well he he he. he he had his own little set in the show. We sang Sadie. We sang back up for him uh, with Sadie. But he was also, you know, he's scatting on uh, knee deep. Yeah. Um, he, you know, he had to find his space within the funk yeah. because he, but he, he, he was, a, he, you know, I remember that one session at Super Disc, Peanut was on the mic. He was on the mic and somebody else. And George said, who is that? It's a little out of tune. And Peanut said, you know, Peanut was very quiet. He says, Felipe. <laughs> and Felipe did like 10 minutes on Peanut. What do you mean, me? I don't never go out of tune. It was, uh, I laughed. It was so funny. It was just, that's just, another one of those times where you were probably laughing and I would laugh, but I don't know if everybody else would be laughing. Well, Peanut just stood there looking at the mic with his hands in his pocket while Felipe was yeah, doing his time. Yeah, Felipe's on. And you know, you know, and I, I was admiring of it. Yeah. Uh, not the. I thought it was funny, but I also thought, what's it like to be so confident in your gift that you could stand up for it like that? That that, you know. And on the one hand, it's sort of egotistical. I can never sing out of tune. But then, at the on the other hand, it's like admirable that you are so respectful and you know of your talent that you're protective of it you're not going to let anybody say you were you know and but then i went on to meet the audra mcdonald's like i, I went on to have a career in musical theater in mm. ragtime i was living in toronto and audra mcdonald i'm sure you know who that is and um she had perfect pitch mm. so here we are at ragtime and she's singing hey, wheels hey. of a dream and she's, it's the first time we sat down and we're, we're you know, walk, talking through the script at the table. And she's like singing, Wheels of a Dream. And then she hears, that's, a, that's not an A, it's an A flat. Wow. She heard it. And I thought, there are people who don't, they can't sing I out of tune. They just, they just have perfect pitch there. Yeah. They're, they're Amadeus, they're, they're, they are mm -hmm. Mozart. They are genius. They are geniuses. Yeah, yeah. And you've and you've worked with with many. As she was honored in the um, in the Smithsonian's African American Museum, mm -hmm. it's a whole like the the fifth floor. If you go, it's definitely one of those things where you could easily spend three old days there. But make sure if, if you ever go, people, you and people. Uh, get up to the community level and also the 
uh, culture level so you can see certain things mm-hmm. like what's honoring black mm-hmm. theater black musicals um, black humor you know it's dance it's it's very it's very deep the way that things were woven together so from there I, I'm, I'm following some of your journey Detroit Toronto I love Toronto it's like clean New York Detroit New York New York Back to Detroit. Back to Detroit, then to Hawaii, mm-hmm. then to Los Angeles, then to Toronto. Wow. Back to Detroit. Okay. So <laughs> you you've lived. Okay. Let's let's go in just in the culture as we're we're already in overtime, but I just really want a, a, a taste of everything <laughs> in these different places. What what was the response when you told people you were from Detroit when you were in New York? You from Detroit? That's the murder city. I'm like, I know you ain't saying that. I mean, look, I, I got, I got some homicide detectives that watch over us, you know, because we were walking from Spanish Island. They talk, they advise. How can you say that? You know what I mean? Uh-huh. It just really kills me when people. Detroit has such a badass reputation that even your badass. Because I was living in New York when forty six when Forty Second Street was the nasty 42nd oh, yeah, Street. You were, it was not the, it was not Times Square with no. the M&M factory. No, it's the, like that TV show. That's yeah, yeah, on, that's, on HBO, yeah. Yeah, that's what it was like. I was. remember, I remember a little bit of old New York from, like, this is the first trip I went to New York. I remember the first time we got off, uh, we took the Greyhound, the Grey Beast, as we call it. And all of those black Israelites would be like in that Times Square area. I don't even see them anymore. Like telling, no, yelling at Times white men, Square calling is, them white, white devils. No, Times Square is Disney. Yeah, it's really uh, it's, it's its, it's own world. Different. You know, yeah. it's, a it's no cars. It's, it's a lot different. So that's New York. I know what it was like coming back to Detroit, even though that was a different temperature. Let's just talk about that little change, even in a short 80s. time. What what did you notice change in Detroit in that eighties? I was, uh, it was dry, scarce. It was, the economy was not good. Uh-huh. I was a new mother hmm. and uh, I was, my, my artist, my, being an artist was a little bit on the back burner because I was being a mother and a wife. Mm-hmm. And I would go to the studio and still sing and whatnot. But I didn't feel engaged in my artist life. So I felt a bit constipated, a little bit depressed. And then I moved to Honolulu just to chill out from the funk, you know what I mean? And just to go someplace nobody knew me because I felt that I was somebody's mother, somebody's wife, somebody's daughter, somebody's sister. I didn't have, I didn't know who I was, you know? I was performing in the spaces of the relationships that I was in. So basically, um, this is deep what you're talking about. Like, the roles in which how people saw you were impacting I the was, relationships. I was performing to their expectations. Yeah. I'm your daughter. I will perform like your daughter. You know, I'm, I perform. I'm, I'm your singer. I'm your singer. Right. Mother. I'm, right. I'm, wife. I, I, was, I didn't know myself beyond the, the roles that were, all, that were mm-hmm. giving to me mm-hmm. to play. And I, you know, so I went there so I didn't have any body that was expecting anything of me. So I could meet myself, my weaknesses and my strengths 
and invent myself. So I went there and I quickly became homeless, you know. <laughs> After It's very expensive in Honolulu and I was a little bit bent out of shape from Parliament Funkadelic. I did not want to tell nobody I was even with the group because I felt like a failure. But for, 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 for people, for the world, Parliament Funkadelic was like, Huge. I mean, huge, huge, I mean, huge. The, the, and 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 yeah. I would, didn't want to be. I didn't want nobody to know it about me. And but it's part of your history. It's part of your family. You know, Parliament Funkadelic is my family. You know, and so I didn't want to. You know, it was like. But it was also part of what I interpreted in my story at that time is is that I had failed because, hmm. of, you know, Atlantic Records. We didn't get our contract renewed. There was drugs. You know, it was a lot of stuff that contributed to this sense. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to reinvent myself everywhere. And I became, I always wanted to be an actor and that's where I began to become an actor. I, just, I went back to school, studied theater arts and started doing community theater there. And then at a certain, and then I did a commercial, close up toothpaste and I got my SAG card and I started getting these big residual checks and I thought, yeah. woke up one morning, I'm gonna go to LA, become yeah. an actress. So I moved to LA and Became a stand-up comedian. <laughs> Ain't that something? In L.A. was this uh, mid '80s, '90s? What? What? LA was um, this? I moved to L.A. in 1989, and I was mm. there from '89 to '95. Wow! And got a show in Calgary, Alberta, Canada, with Irene Cara and uh, Billy Huffsey, mm. who was part of Fame. And then I, that show came back in Toronto with Florence Larue and uh, Doug Eskew as the stars. Now, I do just, as I love uh, the black experience, mm -hmm. you were in L.A. for... Yeah, during the Rodney you were King. and O.J. Yeah, I was, I was in O.J., I was in Rodney King riots. I was an artist at that time. I had a group called the, the Black Avant-Garde. It was, it was a collective of poets, visual artists, spoken word artists, mm -hmm. and uh, we were organized. Uh, because when I went to... Um, I, as I was doing stand-up, I would go to different places to get my time in, and I would go to anywhere there was a stage, poetry slams, and I would see these amazing poets, and I'm like, why don't I know her? Oh. And I thought it was odd that I that I didn't know her, and so I said, let's can we can I meet with you? <laughs> I said, um, can we? Who else is there to know? So we put together a group called the Black Avant Garde. We were meeting each other's apartments, hmm. and we didn't even know why we were together. We just but I just noticed that the I energy, started. The mm -hmm. energy brought you all together. Br brought us all together, and something. And then I, and then Keith Antar Mason was out there, and in Highways performance space. So I started to perform in Highways, and I was making connections connections with other artist groups, this women and artists, uh, and that was a white group of privileged white women who got together to support each other in their art. Mm -hmm. um, either because they were stifled. I wasn't stifled. I was like, rawr. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, I, you know, I was just joining different mm -hmm. groups cause I, because having different communities further you. You have support. You're not in, in a vacuum. So I had a lot of communities I belonged to. And what, then what I did was, Landmark. What was the, the, the Rodney King incident? What was the pulse then? Well, like, there was the, what, a lot of, LA feel? there was a lot of racial tension in mm -hmm. South Central between the Koreans and the blacks there, you know? And uh, so, you know, there had been a young young black girl who had been killed by a Korean store, store owner and the store owner got probation. There were a series of events 
that leading led up, up to. And then when uh, the Rodney King thing happened and then the tape started to circulate all over the world, um, and this was before social media, but yeah. it, people would, and it was, um, it was horrific. And then I remember I was working as a temp at Digital Equipment Corporation and Diane Payne came by my desk and said, and the, the verdict was not guilty. And it was like, it was like a storm, a cloud descended upon LA. Mm. And every, you know, the black people at Digital Equipment Corporation sort of just as zombies just got up out off their desks in the mid typing, wherever they were, and walked out. Wow. And the, it was go to AME Church, first AME. We went to first AME. And one second, that's really risky because if you were temp working, people don't like talk about voluntary employment. <laughs> that's. Well, that's temp, a, well, temp, you know. Like, I mean, temp was what I was because I wasn't going to be anything permanent in mm -hmm. that area. I was mm -hmm. an artist, and I needed to make money, so I was a temp. Mm -hmm. So, but um, to get up and walk away, yeah, well, most the, people would have had. There was thought, there was yeah. a lot of jobs. I mean, mm -hmm. I would belong to three or four temp agencies. I wasn't risking my yeah, job. Okay. I mean, if they fired me, they it was just fired like me. You had something else. Yeah, I mean, I could just say, hey, you got to, you know, mm -hmm. whatever. It wasn't a big deal. But, and um, and so we went. We, got up and you we, all went, we went to the first AME church. That's where the meeting was going to be. Because where were you going to put this rage, this confusion? Got there, and the people were talking, saying things about like Martin Luther King, things mm -hmm. Martin Luther King would have said, and um, and it was just the wrong message. It was like no, that's mm, that's not hitting the corners, not doing anything. So I walked out of the church, and when I walked out of the church, I heard the first bottle hit the ground. And then as I was driving home, I heard the fire trucks and fires. Get to my building, saw these guys with beer and pop chips and stuff, and it's like, what's going on? They're going to go up and watch the riot on TV. So the riot broke out, shut down the city, um, the atmosphere changed, and and the Black Avant-Garde, we were organized. So Wanda Coleman, this big poet at the time, she'd ceased now, but Wanda Coleman was part of our collective. It was Keith Antar Mason, Houston Blue, Wanda Coleman, all these activist poet people in LA, because LA was very political. Mm -hmm. And the artists were very active. active. So um, we were, we, and so th we, there was a um, high performance magazine was for artists, and so we, got in they dedicated this whole issue to us and we were in the studios painting on tv shows we were all over the city doing stuff around the Roddy king and i had a project with two other artists where we went into south central tape we did interviews with the national guard with the koreans with the black people the vet everybody and, and then made a, a little installation in beyond baroque where people could go in and walk right on the walls and it would be this continuous loop of the stories that they were telling so the veteran, the people, the black veterans that fought in the Korean War were angry because when they went into the Korean stores, the Koreans would charge them two cents for a book of matches. We fought for them, you know. So it was a lot of tension, and the National Guard would be like, "We understand, you know, we don't, we don't agree with what happened, but this is our job." And it was enlightening. So we did that installation. I still have the the paper. Of, uh, we were on in front page of the Los Angeles Times in the art section, the two other artists and myself. So I was very active in 
in LA, my comedy was, uh, you know, about activism and um, women's rights. And, you know, I was at a particular stage which, in my life. Which I definitely want to go over to in that same zone. Mm-hmm. What was it like, O.J. Simpson verdict there? Uh, it was, I mean, I had friends, actors that would, would call me in tears. Just heartbroken that, that, that this was happening to, to O.J. I was not that much of a football person. And I wasn't really that connected to O.J. where I could get, you know, emotional yeah. about it or anything. Um, but I was living in Toronto when the trial happened because I was okay. I moved to Toronto in '95. So in '95, like as it was starting, as the trial that's was starting, when you moved. yeah. But I was there okay. when the car chase ensued and oh, okay. all of that stuff. But when the actual trial started, I was living in mm-hmm. Toronto, living with a, my Jewish fiance mm-hmm. and go, and his mother, and you know visiting, going every Sunday to his mother's house for dinner who didn't like me because I was black. He had a little three-year-old son. His ex-wife was racist. And his little son, I'm not coming to your birthday party because you're black. My mom, you said I can't come because you're He turned around, he said, don't you ever say that. And he had a racist uncle who wouldn't refuse to have dinner at the table because I was there. It just, but it didn't work out. But it just didn't, um, it didn't phase me in Canada. It's like, you know, in Canada, it wasn't like it was. You no, know, the racism was there, and only the Canadians could distinguish. Just like you know what, you, you ain't being lynched. You ain't got shit going on here. Then you know what I mean. I, you know, to me, I said in Canada was so polite. You know, you got if you were there was a traffic violation, you got you got your little camera thing in the mail. You know, it was they your little photo shoot of your violation. And I was thinking, I, my comedy, I would say stuff like you know. If we had this during the Rodney, there wouldn't have been no riot. Mm-hmm. Rodney would have got his little ticket in the mail, mm-hmm. and there would have been nothing. Wouldn't have been a problem. Wouldn't have been no problem, you know. Mm-hmm. But you know, we would have avoided that. So Canada was like, I mean, y'all ain't got no problems compared to where I came from. We, I, it almost felt like it was coming from the future of black people. They had no black mayor, no black mm-hmm. politicians. You know, there was one. You know, and he was old, and he was not in. No, so there was just like I felt like I was a pioneer of a lot of things being there, and um, you know they had, you know, a lot of different. There were a lot of black people, people with dark skin, but it was very tribal at African, the time. Caribbean, Caribbean, but even even being Caribbean, Jamaican, yeah, Trini, yeah, they, yeah, what? Yeah, 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 we're like, not the same ting. We're not the same ting. The Puerto Ricans, they talk like this. They got a very musical accent, like yeah, this, yeah, and then yeah. it was the British, Jamaicans, and. Yeah. It was the Africans I would go to, the African they don't even club. They think they're black. It, it, well, I've had some discussions well, not. with some where they don't identify as they, when they you don't. say, hey, you're black, and they say, mm-hmm, No, 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 but black. I encountered that in Hawaii. I'm, you know, I'm, I encountered that in Hawaii. There were Tongans and Fijians, yeah. and I would say, oh, you're black. I'm not black. I'm Fijian. I'm Tongan. Yeah. And then that's when I, it began to, you know, dawn on me that African-American culture is specific. This mm-hmm. is a marriage, mm-hmm. you know, that, that we, you know, being black in America is a different experience yeah. than, you know, when I went to Barbados, black person's on the money. Yeah. You know, Jamaica, you know, you know, yeah. it's a very, you could still see the colonialism there, you know, with the, but, but it's like they're black, yeah. you know, and, uh, and I'm an American with privilege because I'm an American. 
and the much is expected of my pocketbook when I go to Jamaican, and I'm trying to tell them I don't have any money. I, I, exactly. I, am on like a economy vacation, and Modern when economy. I hear, and I hear myself Blue say, "Spirit, man." Yeah, I, I was, I was, I, there was no leg room, and then when I hear myself saying that to the lady who's mm. sitting on my beach chair, saying, "My husband weird to me. I got to feed my beard." You know, it's like, but I. Flew here, I. Oh, you flew here. Okay, I. Yeah. Oh, but you're living in the hotel. Yeah. I only have, but yeah. she. Yeah. So I had to, you know, privilege is a responsibility. Oh. You I, know, and I began I, I, to I, understand yeah. the privilege white people have that they don't know they have. Yeah. And if you don't know you have it, you can't really use it. It uses you, and you benefit, and you don't even know why. You think you're that thing, and you didn't do. So I'm there mm -hmm. with privilege. Yeah, most and, definitely. And, and then even, I don't even know even I have the places, it. Even the the you know even the disposition of like um, so funny. <laughs> when I went to the Dominican last time, and my friend was like, you know, people act like it's real poor, and it ain't as poor as you think. I was like, what you talking about? But you know, you have to drive when you when you if you ever fly into the Dominican, you go to Santo Domingo. You have to drive through like maybe like five miles of shanty towns, like where it's truly old billboards that were taken, broken, and now they're the roofs. And I'm like, all of those people. I'm like, now the place that I'm staying as an American, the place that even can get listed onto a website where I can choose to stay in America, is so different than that. It's no way I can choose to stay in that house as an American with an American passport that has a broken billboard as a roof. Hey, I went to get my hair done. I've got locks. I went to get my hair done. I'm, 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 I go in. She's washing my hair, and it's cold. Water is cold. I'm like, oh, can you warm it? Well, she says, okay. She goes. She gets a teapot. Mm -hmm. She heats the water up. She does this three times to wash my hair. I'm like, I'm in a real third world country. So when she goes to do, you know, she goes to do something with a plug, she got to unplug the coffee pot, then mm -hmm. plug the, so the so the fuse doesn't blow. Yeah. I, and then I look at her, all the products that she's going to use on my hair, and they're all products from the 80s that I don't use them, you know. And so I felt like what my mother used to call Miss Ann. Are you going to use that? Uh, uh, no, I don't want that. I just felt like I was. Yeah. I, I, I've stepped very much into the role as. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's very easy because based on our understanding the of like stepping into America. Yes. You can, yeah. American poor mm -hmm. is so much different than the idea of possibly well to do in certain other places and spaces just due to. The, it, I mean, it, it goes to the roots of capitalism, racism, white supremacy, big brother, the man, Mr. Charlie, whatever variation of that you want to use. So you can definitely present that argument because the reason she doesn't have that and the reason why, you know, you can be in, you know, the people that right now are living in Oakland, meaning they're they're in being oppressed just due to Silicon Valley being blocks, you know miles away from Oakland and now their quality of life is being devalued as everyone's being ousted from Oakland mm -hmm. is the same 
it, it's the same atrocities that's going on like near the resort towns of Jamaica, but just from a different you know viewpoint. So some of the kids in America are still playing PlayStation and still on you know have a smartphone, but the the act of it, that act of that same oppression is still well, ever present. Socialism works as a as a as a model. It works, mm-hmm. you know, but it's not capitalism. Mm-mm. And and so social, it's a convenient, you know, the capitalists, you know, the folks in government, you know, our representatives, our unrepresentatives, as I like to say, they um, they benefit from socialism. They do they're doing socialism and corporate welfare, and they but they the story they tell about it is. It's different than the story they tell about the, uh, the black people who are trying to do socialism, or, or they try they want what you know want a handout, and they're getting handouts all over the place. But I the mean, way they tell the, the story, the the Red Wing Stadium, the idea of creating jobs, which is so goofy. As an entrepreneur, mm-hmm. let me let me make this very explicit, as I always say. I I'm gonna take my fan time. out and fan myself. It might make some noise, but oh, do what you do. There's no such thing as a job creator. No business person has ever created a job. Nobody's in business to create jobs. A job is a externality, meaning it's an economic outcome of a system to make profit. But nobody's in business ever saying, oh, man, we created a bunch of jobs. Now, during the industrial age, people like Andrew Carnegie, Henry Ford, uh, you know, even J.D. Rockefeller, it meant something to say we have this many employees, but that was an externality of the industrial age. No one is a job creator. Let's stop. Let's let's stop using that term. I hate that term. <laughs> so, as we wrap, and I'm gonna have to get you back. I'm gonna, I'm gonna close with the three classic Detroit's different questions. Question one: What was your very first car? The year, make, and model, and the year you got it. 1972. Okay. 1968 Newport Chrysler. I've never even seen a Newport. What? Uh, where was the first place you went when you got it? Um, college, Michigan State. My father okay. got me the car, and Two I envisioned a little red. I got you a car. Uh huh. I'm like, really? Because I've been watching the Gidget movies, and I really uh-huh. visualized this little red convertible. Uh huh. And the Newport Chrysler was this long boat of a car. Uh-huh. This blue. I'm like, what? <laughs> okay. How long did it last? It lasted um a good, you know, it lasted probably about four years. I ran okay. it into the ground. I didn't know. Okay. I didn't I mean, know nothing about the car. car. So, yeah, I was... put gas in it, and I didn't even know it needed oil. I was... <laughs> <laughs> That was real metal car too. You probably people had to get out the way when it was an ice world. The um, gas gauge broke, so I had to eyeball. I've had one. Of I those often cars. ran out of gas. <laughs> I, I've had one of those gas gauge broke cars where you mm-hmm. eyeballing it, <laughs> running out of gas, and gas station is miles away. But it was a different world. Um, next question. It's the end of the Detroit fireworks. You get to play three songs for the crowd. You're at Jefferson and Woodward. Or three songs for you, either way. What three songs you playing? Today, right now? Yep. Uh, um, 
I would play When I Was Your Man, the Bruno Mars tune, Done by the Temptations. Mm -hmm. uh, Earn It, Done by the Temptations. Okay. <laughs> and, um... Like a River, Mary J. Blige. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. So that, that would change every day. You're so musical. Meaning like if I ask you next week, it'll be another three mm -hmm. songs. Ain't that something. Otis yeah. Williams is happy with those choices as of right now. <laughs> he made two on the list. <laughs> and if you could rename Woodward after one D Trader, who would it be and why? Woodward. I guess it would be Coleman Young. Okay. I'm, he's, he's an, you know, I, I know that my parents, their, their energy shifted when he became mayor. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. All right. So coming up and I'm going to get this up that Tuesday before. You have an event June 15th. It's mm -hmm. the Father's Day spot. Honor thy father. Honor yes. thy father. Twisted storytelling. Mm -hmm. Who do you have on deck? Who's gonna who's gonna share or do you want to share who's gonna be here? We have Maxie Jones. Okay. Patricia Wheeler. Okay. Patricia Millinder, whose father, hmm. the Millinder Center. Millinder Center. Mm -hmm. Uh Dr. Uh Gwendolyn. Ooh. Price. No. <laughs> Hold on. Okay. Oh. Sounds like a that. Um, her father was a big activist. He was a star basketball player. Hmm. And uh who's that? Let's see. Geneva Williams, Dr. Geneva Williams. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. So that's all gonna definitely be cool, mm -hmm. uh, as uh, as you got some some strong women to talk about good black fathers. We have some. Um, we have a we have a good black father too. Yeah. We have the daddy daughter dancers. Hmm. This show, we usually we have all men for fathers, mm -hmm. but I, I I it's really interesting to hear women honor their fathers. Yeah, the daughter father relationship. Is yes. Deep. Mm -hmm. It's very, it's very deep, and we don't, and it's a missing in the culture, the stories. Mm -hmm. So for women, the the daughters, to honor the father, or just a father who becomes a father at forty eight, mm -hmm. and gets, you know, becomes a father out of a fling, and then doesn't is never away from his son, decides to go forward with the woman and it was the fling. So one second, so it's like, he baby daddied himself at 48, but he still was like, nah, I'm about to take the responsibility of fatherhood and I'm not about to baby mama her. Yep, she calls him up and says, um, I hate to tell you this, but you're Last weekend gonna, you're was a little a too much fun of a weekend, or I guess, I don't know, last month ago, no, she, yeah, yeah, and, and uh, she says, um, you know, and, 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 you know, he was a committed bachelor, you know, he was living in Harlem, she was in the Bronx, it was like, mm. yeah, but when she had the baby, and 
she had to walk up the steps. He's like, well, why don't you come live with me? And that wow. was seven years ago. Wow. And now they have two children. Wow, that's deep. Mm -hmm. that's it's it's profound. Yeah. yeah, I was going to say, yeah, because it's, uh, it's a lot of baby daddies that... But see, Don't his father—he didn't know. He didn't. He 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 didn't have his. He didn't. His father didn't come into his life till he was sixteen, hmm. and his father had no idea how to be a father. Mm -hmm. So they bonded around beer. Hmm. <laughs> she said, "What kind of? What do you drink? I drink this. Okay, they got a case of beer. They drank it. It was the first real conversation that he and his father had. Hmm. And then his father said, "Well, let me teach you how to drive now that you're drunk." <laughs> that that's uh. Um, that is not a parenting lesson believed in by no, Kari Frazier. No, but if you don't know how to father, <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, if you don't then know, you do yeah, what you know. You, yeah, and I beer is something you. men do. Drink beer is something men do. Talk about. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But you, you know, it was there, it was, it, it was more in the effort to find a connection with his son than it was mm -hmm. about whether this is morally acceptable or not. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a it's a it's a generational story, and then so when he has his son, his he recognizes that my son has something that I never had. He's already starting out with something that I didn't have, which is a father. Hmm. Who's here? Yeah, that's deep. Look forward to it. Look okay. forward to it. How do people get in contact with you? Find out more information. Uh, well, you can visit our website at uh, twistedstorytellers.org mm -hmm. and you can go to the events page and purchase tickets uh, or you can come to the door for tickets. Mm -hmm. uh, we encourage, encourage you to come. It's a fantastic event. Um, it's, um, the stories are amazing. Mm -hmm. um, the experience, it's an experience that uh, people find great value from and it's entertaining mm -hmm. and uh, it's just a wonderful thing to attend and um, and anybody can come tell a story so don't just come and be in the audience but I always tell the audience that listening is profound it's revolutionary so everybody has a job when they come to the show not like a job job but listening is a very it's it's hard it's a skill set. It's a skill, but mm -hmm. storytelling makes it easy. Oh yeah. And um, but when you listen, you give the other human being power. You give, you give them, you grant them something mm -hmm. called being, and you get to understand different cultures and different ways of being, and you get to grow and transform through through the experience. You know, you there's a reason storytelling. That there's a reason for it. It's to me. It's a built-in community and society therapy, hmm. because if we don't talk, if we don't let those anxieties and frustrations come out and articulate them, so somebody else can hear that, it gets bottled up, and then you have mass shootings, amongst other things. Amongst other things. So, mm -hmm. listening is um, it's a generosity. It's a service. And it's an, a, revolution, a revolutionary act, and at the highest level, I say it's love. Well, thank you. This was fun. We're definitely gonna get you back. Thank you. Thank you very much God for knows. having me. I feel like I just got to not even the tip <laughs> of the iceberg. Thank you. Thank you.